things like I, that I have a very clear memory of being like in the back seat of this cop car in handcuffs and like, you know, it all kind of crashing in and realizing, wait a second, actions do have consequences. I'm not untouchable. realizing like I'm now in a car on my way to a jail like (laughs) like what am I gonna do my parents aren't gonna bail me out those moments it all started to really you know like I said crash in like not just set in but like smack you in the face and you start to start to question everything every minute is like an hour to go from having all this control or feeling like you have all this control this illusion of control to now realizing you have absolutely none and you're in a box. What's going on? It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is episode four of our series on ecotourism in San Jose del Cabo. In this series, we'll be discovering the unique locals, culture, and landscape that make up one of the world's top resort destinations. Today, we'll be interviewing local diver, conservationist, and photographer Jay Clue. Having walked away from a PhD and a conventional life, he thrives deep beneath the ocean surface and enables others to do the same. When I was there, Jay invited me to his classroom where he runs his ninja dive master and instructor development programs. So I'm seeing a whiteboard right below a TV. I'm seeing these beautiful blue photographs around me. What kind of fish is that? Is that a straight marlin? And then we have some like dive equipment around us. Or, or I guess those are like the dials. They're there? gauges. Gauges. Yeah. What is that for? For the tanks to see how much air is in the tanks. Probably important, right? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um... But before you were in this room, you were in New Jersey. Well, I grew up in New Jersey. My with, uh, my father was a mechanic, so we had a house with like an auto repair shop kind of behind the house. I never heard it was on the next block. What was your mom doing? She was working in uh, travel, um, like as a travel agent. Yeah, no, I was there till I was about 12 or so, and then um, my parents split up, and I moved to Pennsylvania. What was your relationship with your dad? Because it seems like he, he taught you like a lot of values. Always been really, really close with my father. Um, we've always been more, I guess, like friends in a way. Um, he's a really good guy. He's one of those people that just kind of has that, like, those old school morals. In those early years, is there anything that stuck out to you as something that you wanted to do either inspired by your parents or inspired by something else entirely when i was a kid i had uh i was this magazines like um i can't remember the name of them they were like these kids magazines you get once in a while they have them in the library and stuff like that but in one of them they had um an article about the ocean and in that article there was the first time i'd ever seen a hammerhead shark they're just really bizarre looking yeah so when you saw that hammerhead shark in this in this magazine 
what did you see yourself like wanting to do from that? Was it like, I want to explore the ocean? Was it, I want to like touch a shark? <laughs> was there anything? It was, I don't know. Cause like as a kid and even in, even for a long time, I was pretty afraid of the ocean like, or the water in general. Like yeah, we, we ham head sharks there. Yeah. Why would you? <laughs> <laughs> um, like even like uh, later living on, like in Pennsylvania, I lived on a lake and like jumping in the water, I'd be like running back out of the water. Like I was always kind of afraid of it, but there was something about the hammerhead that just like sparked my curiosity. But then, you know, you got that kind of kid ADHD where you go like, oh, oh, kangaroo. Now that's my new favorite animal. You know what I mean? So it didn't really do much until many years later. It kind of re-sparked when I got in the ocean. What was taking up your time as you, you know, grew up um, going to teenage years? beginning of my teenagers, I guess at 12 or so I moved to Pennsylvania. Um, so I went from basically living in more of like a city environment to living in like the middle of nowhere. It was uh, a bit strange. Plus it was like moving to a completely new school and like all these kind of different things and being a bit of an outcast in a way, because like everybody was from that area being like, Oh, I'm not like the other people here. But through that, like, I started to make friends from, with other people that actually moved to that area, too. The misfit crew. Yeah. <laughs> so from that, we started getting into, you know, I guess, teenager stuff, like skateboarding, graffiti, like, you know, doing stupid things like trying to smoke cigarettes or like, you know, stealing booze from your parents and stuff like all the little hoodlum things, you know. How did you use graffiti? Like, what, like, what was it for you? What, what, like, how did you, like... In the beginning, I think it was more just a way of like, you know, uh, rebelling or like the adrenaline of it. I always was like into drawing. I mean, I always liked to draw Um, like when I was a young kid and everything like that. And I always excelled in like my art classes in school and they were like some of my more favorite classes. So there was a bit of that side of it. But in the beginning, it was, I guess, more about the adrenaline. But then I started to see it as like, wow, I can also like bend these letters and do this and get creative with it. You ever get caught? Not for graffiti, no. I was never really in trouble. I got stopped a couple times in school for things where they would like search my bag looking for markers or spray paint or whatever, but they were never like really anything they could do because I was always very active in art classes. So I was like, these <laughs> are my art <laughs> supplies. I was totally making an oil painting with these, you know, like basically just kept getting away with it. So. Yeah. Did that, did that ever worry you? Uh, not really, because I think in a way it was had the opposite effect. Is it kind of starts to make you feel like invincible. It, yeah, almost yeah. invincible. Like you can just keep doing things and doing worse things, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Feeling invincible can be intoxicating. The adrenaline combined with the dopamine hit he got from creating art made his experience as addictive as a sugar rush. It was a sugar rush for the soul, and it was exactly what he needed. It was a distraction from the rejection he had experienced at his new school. We all know what it's like when you're a teenager. Rejection sucks. It's tough. You know, you're trying to find your friends. You're trying to find your identity. And uh, that identity is moldable and malleable. And so the pain impacts you in a way that rejection later in life just doesn't. It lingers. It sticks in your identity. 
Your sense of identity gets shaped and defined by how others see you. Are you an insider? Are you an outsider? A bully or a victim? One of us? One of them? It's hard. But teenagers also have the ability to form fast, intense friendships. And after facing rejection, Jay found his tribe. They accepted him, warts and all. But while Jay was riding high on the newfound joys of fitting in, things began to escalate. Was there a moment where you were confronted with like, oh wait, shit, I'm getting into some worse things and I'm having to actually face some consequences for that? I don't remember a moment where I was like, ooh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. It was always like there was no real thought of consequences. It was kind of just moving forward always. And we had community. Exactly. You know, had, and that community is supporting you and yeah. those and, endeavors. And speaking of community, like we went from, you know, in the beginning, like two of us, by the time I was graduating high school, there was like 40. You know what I mean? So it was just kept growing bigger, bigger, more people were moving to the area. Our group of friends and all that became larger and larger and larger. And like, but we were all still like those outsiders that weren't from the area. It was hard to, in a sense, to walk away from that. And it was like, I was closer to them than most of my family. You kind of keep doing these things, these wrong things, even though when you get, you know, actually caught or anything like that, it's still like, wow, what this is what I do. Just continued even worse to a point where eventually I mean, I'd get in a lot of trouble. You get caught for something and you have to appear before a judge. Yeah. Do you remember anything about the actual act of like being caught? Um, th- the weirdest thing I remember is like the <laughs> Superman song by Three Doors Down, I think it was from a long time. And this is so strange, but it's like it's a song that's ingrained in my head because when I was arrested and in trouble or whatever, it was playing in the cop car when they were driving me or whatever. And it's like it's one of those things like I, that I have a very clear memory of being like in the backseat of this cop car in handcuffs and like, you know, it all kind of crashing in and realizing, wait a second, like actions do have consequences. I'm not untouchable. And, you know, kind of realizing like I'm now in a car on my way to a jail. Like, <laughs> like, what am I going to do? Like, you know what I mean? Like my parents aren't going to bail me out. Like I don't have the money. Right. Yeah. Even just that, like my father had always you know, taught me as like when I was younger, like you pay for your own actions, you do something, it's your own fault. You have no one to blame but yourself. I was not expecting them to help me. In the end, they did. My father helped me out and helped me get out or whatever. But like those moments, it all started to really, you know, like I said, crash in, like not just set in, but like smack you in the face and you start to start to question everything, you know, in a way like, whoa, like how how did this happen? How am I here now? And why am I not, you know, at home or on my way home and all this stuff? And they took us to like, it wasn't like in a holding cell in a police station. We were in like actual, like in the actual jail. To go from having all this control or feeling like you have all this control, this illusion of control to now realizing you have absolutely none and you're in a box and like you've got a payphone that you can try to call some people like for help or whatever. And where every minute is like an hour, hopefully something happens, but you have no idea what's going on (laughs) 
most of it didn't take place in a courtroom. You know what I mean? It was, I met with the lawyer first, like once they got me out, uh, they bailed me out and everything like that. And we talked about the case and these things and we're basically like, look, you know, we can work this angle basically where you agree not to get in any trouble and you're going to go into like a program, it's like a rehabilitation program or something like that. Um, you'll be able to kind of, you know, keep your nose clean and no harm, no foul and get away with it. You know, not get away with it, but like walk well, away from it eventually. That, like, but honestly, that, that Freudian slip there, yeah. like you kind of did get away yeah, with it. There's, isn't sense. that just reinforcement of I'm yeah. untouchable? Yes and no. At the time, I would say I was more like extremely grateful because in my head, it was over. And this is like a, one of those weird behavior modification kind of centers, um, for instance, and they do all different stuff. It's not just it's not say just drugs or for a crime or whatever it is. They have all different weird things. But as an example, when I was there in the, in the wintertime, they had a person there that had left the program and went and relapsed on heroin and came back and they made him dig his own grave in the, basically the middle of the winter. There was some crazy stuff that went on in this place. How does this place like, is it? Yeah, exactly. And how is it government funded? Is it even weird? (laughs) It's government funded. It's like a government funded facility. Yeah, it was, it was a crazy thing. I mean, when we got caught, they made us stand in opposite corners of the, of the rooms for hours, like four hours, just standing in corners facing walls while they were interviewing every person and all this stuff. It was really, yeah, not good. But long story short is uh, I was removed from the program. So now I have to go back in front of the judge. It was like Jay's lawyer had tossed him a life jacket, but now he was back in front of him, drowning in the same water. From the outside, it looked like Jay had thrown his second chance away. But the reality was... He wasn't set up to succeed. While some claim that being broken down and built back up saved their lives, others question the ethics and efficacy of tough love rehabilitation programs like the one Jay went to. There not only were punishments straight from a horror movie, but the systems just didn't work. Listening to him now, it seems only natural that he slipped back into his old ways. But the 18-year-old Jay had to make his case to a far less understanding audience, the judge. This time I'm falling apart. World is crap beyond crash down. I'm like, there is no way out of this. I didn't think there was a way out of it the first time. And I I just basically took this this second chance they gave me and just threw it out the window. For who knows what reason, the judge was like, asked me, well, why should I give you another chance? And I was like, you shouldn't. I can't give you a good reason why. I don't think there's any way around it. And and in my heart, I didn't believe anything I would say really mattered. But for whatever reason, the the judge thought for a few minutes, came back, and he's like, I give you three days or five days to find another program, but you have to pay it out of your pocket this time. If you can do that, I will allow you a third chance. And I was in shock, to say the the very least. 
the there's a part of me that's always been for since my teenage years where like if I need to get something done or like you know like more like entrepreneurship skills or hustling or whatever like I was on a mission I mean I was like as soon as I got home like cracking up AOL online and stuff you know like trying to find anything yellow pages whatever it was um and was able to to find a facility you know what I mean and um I was able to get into it within days this time it, everything was very different. While I was in there, I used my time there to basically go back to college or whatever to get a degree and all that. I got accepted to a college in Florida. What were you trying to study? I was studying design, graphic design. But I was looking for schools and then also checking their applications when I would find a school I liked and seeing if there was like that question on the form. Have you been arrested or do you have any criminal charges or, you know, record or any of these kind of things and finding the ones that didn't have that on their application and hoping that if I got accepted, they wouldn't ask, you know, and they didn't ask. Jay pretty much got a third chance almost miraculously. But what changed? Why was this time different? For one, the rehabilitation program was costing his family money, and there would be no fourth chance. This time, Jay saw his rehabilitation program as a positive opportunity to turn things around rather than a punishment. When it comes to criminal justice, the most effective response is a hotly contested topic. Some fall on the side of rehabilitation, while others support retribution. Retribution puts the cost on the criminal and relies on punishment while rehabilitation is the opposite, instead offering support to reform behavior. Jay somehow got a third chance to turn his life around, and this time he wouldn't waste it. So what did you think of the program? I didn't really have a lot of issues in it. I really excelled at the school and not just trying to like pat myself on the back, but I, I found it very easy. One, because I was entering the program like already knowing how to use a lot of the software. Illustrator, Photoshop, InDesign, Quark back then, these kind of things, because I was already working on like helping other projects and doing like a little bit of freelance work. So I kind of was entering a program already knowing a bit of it, which allowed me to kind of just fly through the first couple of semesters and like just do things more creatively. How are you leaning into this world more like, like in, in terms of design? So when I started college and everything like that, I met some kids and they asked me to design a flyer for them in Miami. And I was like, yeah, sure. Like a friend of a friend was like, oh, my friend's a designer. Maybe they can help you make this thing for your event because they were looking for a designer. So I did this one design for them. I honestly don't even remember it, what it looked like or anything, but it would kick off this whole kind of crazy um, like snowball effect where I did this one for this one guy and he that people then seen it and he asked him who did it and then they would call me and then I started doing all these other designs for different clubs and raves and festivals and these things and it just kind of kept expanding really fast yeah it just kind of exploded in a way and then all of a sudden I was doing you know tons of flyer work on the side while I was also bartending too you know, I was going to university full time and then I'd go home. I'd go bartend from like 6, 7 p.m. to like 2, 3 in the morning and then like wake up, go to sleep for a couple hours, wake up, go to school. That sounds super tiring. Like, like how are you feeling about it? I was 
burnt out or whatever. But like that whole experience with the stuff prior had put this kind of drive into me that I needed to prove myself to someone. So, yeah, it was like, you know, I did what I had to do. But it would, in the end, I, I graduated top of my class, so won best portfolio, best conceptual portfolio. Um, I came out of school with like a 3.9 something GPA, or whatever, as like, you know, like I think I was two in my class, um, something like second in our class, we graduated with honors and distinction and took like four awards um, as I left like best conceptual portfolio, um, et cetera, et cetera. That moment of graduating, getting all those awards, finishing. Do you remember what you were thinking about that? You know, this is going to sound really bad in a way, but I wasn't thinking about it. I kind of was already thinking what's next. It was like it became like this is one thing done. But I was so in that drive mind state of like having to prove stuff. Cool. I accomplished that. Let's put it to the side and move on to the next thing. And then it was like, okay, now I'm going to I started at that time. I was working with a design firm in South Beach in Miami. So what were you working as? I was working as a designer at a, um, a company that specialized essentially in flyers and print media. They had seen a lot of the work I was doing and kind of just doing stuff with them and almost became essentially like a partner in the company. It went really well. All of a sudden we were getting, I was getting bigger and bigger accounts. I started doing design work for Run DMC, doing design work for Ultra Music Festival and like all these like big, big things. And that was to me was like, yes, now I'm doing something that people will know. My vision in designer in the company was like, let's find bigger accounts. Let's look for bigger brands, bigger accounts because they have bigger budget, less incentives, like, you know, less work because you're dealing with one account instead of dealing with 100 accounts to make the same amount of money. And we kind of started to split in that sense in ideology and these things, plus the other WWF stuff going on and all that. So yeah, we, we started to have uh, separate ways. I decided eventually to leave Miami and leave Florida and move back up north, um, back to New York and New Jersey and started working more in advertising in like that kind of stuff versus doing like small one-off print jobs and these things and got more into doing campaigns and like branding and that kind of stuff. Jay wanted to do something bigger and better than ever before. So he went directly to the heart of advertising, New York City. I moved back to New York City and started working at ad agencies like big agencies, JWT, Crispin, these kind of things. I was mainly working free as a freelance art director and creative director and kind of bouncing and found a bit of a niche for myself with it. It was awesome. It was everything I guess that I wanted at that time because now I was working for like massive brands that everybody knows. We do work for like Atari, PlayStation, uh, Camel Cigarettes, Heineken, Snickers, JetBlue, like... I started to get to a point where like I'd won a few awards in design and these kind of things and like, like a Webby and a Davia and all that kind of stuff. And um, it was in a way getting bored. You know what I mean? Like I, I started to feel like I was losing, like I needed something else. Jay needed something different, something that would challenge him. That next thing that would allow him to prove his worth to others, but more importantly to himself. Advertising just wasn't cutting it anymore, but for a time it did. But he wasn't really connected to the people he was serving or the potential impact that this kind of advertising could have. And it kind of resembles the teenager he once was, doing graffiti as a creative outlet without fear of what could go wrong. 
but that's wisdom that would come with age as he looked toward founding his own company. For now, he was on to the next challenge, a master's degree. And also wanted to change. So I decided to go back to school. I decided that was going to be my next step was to go back and do my master's. So I applied to a bunch of schools in the US and one school in London and got accepted to all of them and was like, I'm going to go to London. So yeah, I did my, my master's there. I finished the master's and um, was deciding what to do next. And I, one of my uh, professors or whatever decided, I was like, you should continue your research. Like it would be, cause I had this idea of building like a library cause I've been of like letter form for graffiti. So I was like, yeah, this, that's amazing. Like, let's, let's do this. I want to do this. So I applied to start a PhD research. I started to think like if I'm going to devote the next five years of my life to something, I want it to be something that's bigger than me, bigger than just something I love. But I had this kind of, I don't want to call it an epiphany, but like this moment where I was like, why am I still doing all this stuff? Like who, what do, who do I need to prove something to? And that kind of started to eat away at me. For me, it was something I toiled over for quite a few months and trying to figure out where to go with it. But this is kind of at this same point is where the diving timeline starts to cross with the you know, design in Jay's life timeline. And let go of past failures. This is a recurring theme from succeeding in college to wanting to become a successful advertiser to pursuing higher education. Jay's determination to prove himself brought him to the point of burnout. Jay was letting his past mistakes dictate his future. By taking a break, Jay was making an active choice to move forward and away from his past. But even he didn't know where the future would take him. Did you always have a love of diving? The first time I ever tried diving, it scared the crap out of me. Um, all I really remember from it was like, going on this dive in St. Lucia and the two thoughts going through my head, I was like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Oh, that's a pretty fish. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Later in life, I would learn when I became an instructor that the, the company that I went with broke basically every possible standard and rule that there is for that course or whatever. Um, but that, that first experience, you know, went back to me from years ago of like being afraid of the water and not wanting to be in the water. But years later, I would take a break, like a vacation in when I was living in London and um, I was waiting for my passport to be, come back because I had renewed my visa, my student visa. And I've got my passport back. Lawyer calls me and he's like, Jay, I've got your passport, sending it to you. You'll have it tomorrow morning. Yeah. So I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. So I went literally right online, opened easyjet.com. First thing that I seen like a flight to somewhere special or whatever price or whatever um, was the Canary Islands. And I was like, sold, going tomorrow and booked like a two week trip to go out there. I get to the hotel and I noticed this very peculiar thing. There's no one there because it was so slow. The hotel wasn't making breakfasts in in house. So they would give you this voucher and you'd be like, OK, you can go get your breakfast down the road at this restaurant, you know. And on my walk to this restaurant every morning, I would pass this dive shop and the Spanish guy would be outside and he'd be like, hey, you want to try diving or whatever? And I'd be like, uh, nah, not good. I'm good. I'm not, I'm not done. It. No. And then I'd walk back and you'd be like, you sure you don't want to try diving? <laughs> and I'd be like, nah, man, scared to death of it. Almost died. Next day, same question again. Same. Qu like He would just try to get a conversation with me every time. 
eventually I stopped to talk with him one day and I was like, told him the whole story. And he's like, I'll make a deal with you. Like you start the course and um, we just do it. And if you don't like it at any point, I refund you all the money and no harm, no foul. I got nothing. There's nothing to do. And I was like, all right, well, I've got nothing to lose. So I started diving with him and that was it. I was like addicted, like fell in love with it. What do you love about it? I think it's the whole, it brings you back to being like a kid. It's that thrill of like exploration. You're actually exploring. Like it's something new. It's it's an ex, it's a place you've never been before. It's like it's underwater. It's somewhere humans don't even belong. I went to this, fell in love with it. Like was just like the, the whole lifestyle of like being in the water every day, diving with sharks, like learning about them. I had now found myself not like losing the passion for everything else and all my energy wanting to go towards diving. And so coming back to London, what are you feeling? Oh, the big thing for me was now, how do I continue doing it? You know what I mean? Like I just found something I was falling in love with, but I have no friends that dive and don't know anything about diving. Thought that in the UK, there was absolutely no diving because it's the UK. I would learn that that is completely wrong. There's like more divers per capita in the UK than most places in the really? world. It's mind blowing how many people dive in that country. Yeah, I started looking around, finding dive shops, trying to meet people and these kind of things. And I couldn't find any friends that dove. So how does this love of diving compare to, I, I imagine you really were passionate about design. Are these competing for your attention right now? What, what, what's going on? I think because of where I was in my mind state with design at the time, especially with having this, these second thoughts about the PhD, as well as like wanting to get away from commercial design to get more into design research, you know what I mean? And all that, my love for design was starting to diminish and that vacuum or whatever was really quickly filled with diving. So then I sat with my, one of my supervisors, the, the cooler one, the one I thought would be more understanding. And he was like, man, like passions change. You got to follow, do what you love. Um, so, yeah, I left and took some jobs and started working in diving and bouncing around the world and all that kind of stuff. Was it everything that you hoped it would be? Yes and no, because you in the beginning, you tend to also forget it's a job. It's a lot of hard work. You're in the sun all day. A lot of times you're in the sun all day and super hot climate, well, depending where you work and all that, but like where I was, so it physically it's demanding, mentally it's demanding and it's, it's a lot of work. And at the end of the day, you're being paid peanuts. The pay wasn't great. The labor was intense, but Jay still remained fully committed to diving. His passion for exploration and the ocean outweighed the challenges he was facing. He had found one of the lesser known keys of success prioritizing. Our job can fulfill a variety of different desires, wealth, community, fun, comfort, purpose. But if we're expecting it to fulfill them all, we're setting ourselves up for unhappiness. By focusing on what's important to us, we can find contentment with what we have and discover the motivation to weather difficulties. There were many things, especially at the start of diving, that were extremely challenging for Jay. But because he had perspective and his priorities straight, he'd be able to show up day after day, eventually following his passion to the other side of the world. I've been talking to um, a bunch of friends about uh, hedonic creep. So like hedonic creep is basically as humans, we adjust to whatever circumstances we have, right? So 
if you have a million dollars, you're going to be like, uh, after you adjust to that, you're going to be just as happy as you were when you had a hundred thousand dollars because our desires will expand. It's like almost like you're, you're putting a gas inside a tank. It's going to expand to the, to the dimensions of the tank. Your desires will expand, will expand to the dimensions of your income. And what's hard is when those dimensions shrink because you've already expanded to the dimensions of your income and now you've shrunk down and there's pressure that builds up. That pressure can be uncomfortable. What's the pressure of shrinking down the means by which you lived? It was really hard. Really, really hard. I tried to take it uh, with, you know, stride or whatever you want to say. And like throughout my life, I've been very interested in like Buddhist philosophies and these kind of things. And like, you know, the concept of like not having material things or not wanting material things and this stuff. So I really tried to like take that part of my brain and be like, see, this is what you're doing, right? Like, it's a good thing. And I'm like, uh, but at the same point, struggling to pay bills. In the beginning, it wasn't so bad because my first couple of years, I was still designing freelance, like not as much like a full time, but I was, but then I was doing, you know, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. diving. And then I'd go home and make food and I'd work three, four hours at night to on design projects um, just to be able to keep paying bills, paying, you know, student loans, bills, all these kind of things. So it's hard, but doing that was such a physical job, working 10, 12 hours a day, plus then doing four or five hours a night on design is like, burns you out you know what I mean eventually but at some point I kind of was like look like I either need to a figure out how to adjust my life enough and live off of just a diving salary you know what I mean or I'm going to just keep killing myself in forever or I just need to leave diving completely um, and kind of just started to find a ways to balance it At what point do you think about starting your own company? I don't really know. It was, I came to Baja about five years ago. And when I came here, I was just here to help out a friend with some things and visit the area. And while I was here, a friend of ours, a client of mine from years messaged and was like, hey, I'd love to see that area. Like, can you take me and show me? I was like, I don't live here and I don't work here. <laughs> but... I was planning to go bounce around and do some stuff. If you want, let's rent a car and we'll just go explore together. And they were like, yeah, that's awesome. Let's do it. So like I rented a van, we met at the airport and it was awesome. And, and they would go on. And then a, a friend of ours, Colin of theirs was coming to the area. It was going to be in the area later. And can we give him your contact? And I was like, I, I don't really live there, but like, yeah, why not? And then, you know, these people told other people and told other people and it started to become like a more of a regular thing. I need to, yeah, yeah. It's like I need to build some start to put things in place. But it was never an idea of like this is I'm going to create this company. It was just like in the beginning, like, all right, well, I should probably get registered as a business or yeah, whatever. This is just out of necessity to deal with exactly. these people. Yeah, and we were tiny. It was just me. And then um, it started to get a bit bigger. And then I um, would hire Mariana, who would go start as a, an assistant trying to uh, help me out. She's a friend back then and everything. And she's now one of the managers of Dive Ninjas. It got to a point where it started to look like a business. Yeah. And I was like, wait, like I need to decide what I want to do with this because I've worked in a lot of dive shops in a lot of countries and a lot of places in the world. And I know what I, I want and what I don't want. And I don't want to end up being one of these shops that I hated working in. And it started to get me thinking and going back to these ideas, my love for research and conservation and community development and these kind of things. And I was like, well, maybe there's this there's an idea here. Maybe there's something different we can do here. 
a lot of people think about how they'll make their business stand out before they actually build it. But Jay kind of reversed the typical entrepreneurial process. He just kept saying yes to opportunities that interested him and where he had expertise. By doing this, the business formed itself and he eventually had the foundation necessary to take creative risks. It was a stable business model, sure, but it also allowed for Jay to do what he loved. He was instructing, budgeting, and working day in and day out because diving fulfilled him. It didn't matter to him when or if he'd make some glamorous impact that others would recognize. At this point, he totally let go of his grad school mindset, his constant desire to prove himself. When he finally let go of this pressure, the opportunity to do bigger things that he actually would like to do still came along. It just wasn't forced. Jay would make his mark. Can you quickly tell me what you saw about these other dive companies that you didn't want to have your dive company be? There's a lot of different things you see that in the industry. I mean, one is is how they treat employees and how they kind of the the amount they're paying the the locals compared to what's being paid to the foreigner is mind blowing. Like the differences, you're like, what? Like, how are you living off of that? There's no real care for the community. There's no real care for the the environment, the ecosystem. I, I find it very bizarre that you can run a, a tour to the ocean knowing what plastics they are doing to the ocean, but then be giving out plastic bottles on your tour or plastic snack wrappers and these kind of things. And that to me is very, you're destroying your own investment as a, as a business, but also you're destroying the thing that brings you money. And so it, it's what these kind of thoughts started to go through my head. You know, could we create something different? Could we create something that essentially could be a model for other dive centers, for other tourism operators in the world? This is how things should be done. We have a chance now. We're just starting out. Like it's just the beginning of the company. Can we create it? And can we then utilize, also utilize tourism as a way to further marine research and marine conservation projects? Um, and that was kind of our, our initial pillars. We started to, yeah, to build from there, looking at how we can tie research projects and local conservation projects to what we were doing. Can we utilize these expeditions to then, say, create funding for this research project that is, you know, looking at or trying to understand this animal that we're running the expedition around? Not only do you start to bring, you know, more awareness to the general public about the animal, you know, I mean, about the things, striped marlin or mobulus or whatever it might be. You're teaching them, you're teaching them the conservation, you're interpreting nature for them. So they, they take something home, they go, you know, hopefully inspired to want to do more. But you also, you're, you're raising funding, essentially. We can take a portion of the profits we're making and donate that into the research, into the, the programs. But then on top of it, you're now also making logistics for the researchers to be able to be on the water. I mean, researchers, they want to conduct research on, say, a marlin. They need to go on a boat to do that. Those boats cost money. If you can give them a platform for free, well, hey, we're going to be out with customers. Come with us. In exchange, you teach the customers a little bit about the animals and what you're working on, and you have access to the boat to use for your research. You know, there's a lot of different facets of that, that like you can utilize tourism as a vessel to really further marine research and marine conservation efforts on different sides. And I mean, not just the, the research side or the conservation side, but also on the human side. You know, I mean, teaching guests and explaining to them these different things. And, and then they them. become evangelists for like the ecology and preserving it. Exactly. And that's the big thing is like for us is like, you know, we work to try and inspire the guests. 
there's very different ways, many different ways about going about conservation and educa- marine education or uh, nature education. But for me, I'm a firm believer that if you can make someone fall in love with it, then they're going to want to protect it, you know. So if we can inspire them and put them in positions that like, you know, they're like jaws dropped and eyes are wide open and they're just unbelievably amazed at what they're seeing, like you and you can interpret that to them and like to explain what they are seeing and give them something like you can essentially then inspire them to be able to want to protect that or protect the ocean in general, you know. Inspiring people to actually want to protect the ocean rather than just preaching information about it. It's not the easiest route when it comes to activism, but it's definitely the more effective one. This is where I feel like Jay's perspective as an artist is so important. In the age of information, people hear about the importance of environmentalism all the time, but getting people to listen and actually do something is the tricky part. By tapping into human emotion, you can inspire someone to take the first step in creating real and lasting change. And artists like Jay help provide the vision that encourages this shift in perspective. Today, Jay's mission keeps going. What are the, some of the projects that you're working on now that you're most proud of? The Mobulary Expeditions, a project that we built with Marta Palacios, a researcher that studies uh, devil rays. Um, she's one of the co-founders of the Mobular Conservation Project here in Baja. Like it's one of the ones we run the most trips and have the most people coming to see because it's just a mind-blowing experience. It's really cool, like the work that comes out of that, you know what I mean? And like the things that are coming out of it with with their team and all that kind of stuff and how their research is evolving and the conservation efforts are evolving and all that. We also have projects with striped marlin, um, with researchers on that. We have projects with manta rays. We have projects with sea turtles. We have projects with sharks. We are actually leaving next in three weeks to run. On, and the thing is, we don't just focus here on Baja. That's where our bread and butter is. But we do a lot of international trips. So we're running a, a conservation trip in Cocos Island in a couple of weeks. And the same, like we go in December to Bimini to uh, work with Shark Lab for a research experience, shark research experience and learn about the sharks there and the research they're doing there. Um, a few weeks ago, I just got back from Bimini again for wild, a wild dolphin expedition, which is a program we designed as a way to show people that you don't need to go to captive dolphin attractions. You can experience them in the wild. But for me, the, the more powerful impact in a sense is the the human level impact is what we see on a human scale and we always try to end our trips the the one of the last talks on the trip is always centered around conservation the idea is to show them you know you've seen these beautiful creatures all week and we're going to talk a little bit about the threats and the sad part but we're not going to dwell on that i mean we just want you to understand these threats are real but then the, the bulk of that conversation will go into what can we do to protect them what can you do in your life when you go home from here you leave this ship in the middle of the ocean and you go back to you know somewhere in the middle of the u.s or anything like that how do you make an impact but from one of these trips, a woman on one of our uh, Manta research trips, she was kind of inspired by a talk we did about we were talking about plastics and things. She works for a hospital and she went back to the hospital and started championing getting rid of disposable plastics in the entire hospital. And she made massive efforts with it, like massive impact. I was like literally convinced them to, you know, remove a lot of the disposable plastics they were using in the cafeterias and all these kind of things. And that was beautiful in its own right. It was incredible. Like, wow, like this is one person inspired from something we did, like one thing we organized and they went on to do this. These stories for me is why we do what we do. But the, the bigger impact, I think, in a way is 
you know, this human impact is being able to inspire someone to do something and then them talk to other people and inspire other people. And you kind of have this natural, like organically growing, you know, snowball of impact. I always compare it to like ripples. Like you throw a a pebble in the water and the ripples kind of move away from it. And that's what we're doing. Like every time we work on an expedition or we run a trip or we do a tour, we're just planting that one little pebble and hoping that the ripples are picked up by one of them, someone else. And they continue that pebble and continue those ripples moving outward. And you just have this kind of endless impact. You know what I mean? I love that because I, I feel like those ripples are something that you've just been doing your whole life. So like initially when you were talking about uh, you in like middle and high school, you're sending out these ripples. You actually garner a really solid community, probably using the same principles you're using today, but just for, for not the best things. But you created like a really solid community of 40 people that actually felt like they had a home where uh, otherwise they might have been an outcast, right? And then you have it again when you're looking into graffiti to uplift communities. It's like graffiti and art can be the stone and the pebble that starts to ripple throughout a community. And now it's like, once again, you've made this shift, but you're doing it with conservation. You're teaching people how to throw pebbles and you're seeing the effect. Looking at that ability to build communities, what do you think is was the most important thing for you to learn to be able to do that? I think empathy. Um, I think is a, is a really big one. It's something, one, we can't really learn in school, you know what I mean, or be taught, but also being able to empathize with people as well as being able to kind of put yourself in their shoes and, and see it from both sides. We're, as humans, we're very quick to get emotional. An example, I take a group of people to say a shark fishing camp here in Baja and immediately they're all demons. All the fishermen are demons, you know what I mean? They're, they're monsters. They're here killing sharks. They instantly turn them into demons, but they're not. They're, they're human. They're doing a job. And in many cases, this is all they have. They don't have a college education. They may not even have finished high school. And killing these sharks is the only way they can provide their for their father families. taught them how to do this when they were a boy. And the grandfather taught the father how to do this. You know what I mean? It's a generational thing. It's been going on for years. And this is how they provide for their wife, their kids, their family. This is what they do. That is more... Uh, like a society problem that's not a, a them problem you can't just tell them hey you can't fish sharks anymore what, what are they, how are they going to feed their family you know what i mean you need to provide them with something you need to bring them with training okay well now instead of fishing sharks we're going to teach you to run tours or we're going to teach you to fish oysters or we're going to teach you something different i talked to um jacopo on the pre-interview call he said the most important thing that like ecotourism can do is unfortunately you're gonna have to work within a capitalist structure right but if you can teach people that sharks swimming around happy and alive is worth more than a dead shark then you can change a whole community you can change a whole infrastructure you can change a whole profession and it's just about educating people and 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 showing people the value of these incredible animals yeah, like you said, you have to work in a capitalist structure. We're a business. We need to be able to stay alive, but we can do a lot of things as a business. We don't need to get rich. We can still give 40% of our profits or we can do these different things to be able to fund better projects. And in tourism, we should remember that it's not about going to just see beautiful animals. It's not about putting people on a boat and taking them out and saying like, hey, there's a beautiful shark in the water. It's about, you know, seeing that and saying, okay, how can I utilize my resources as a tour operator to protect that animal? 
as Dive Ninjas has grown, and we've kind of hit this now much more global brand awareness, that it's starting something that hopefully people will see and show that like a bit, we've been able to do it in the past four years, I mean that we've been in business. So it's, you know, a marker that other businesses could follow suit. And even if they're donating 5% of their profits to fund local research efforts or don't, you know, getting more people into workshops and interpretations and teaching them about the local area, et cetera, et cetera. It's something that's really possible, you know, and could essentially help change the fate of our oceans. We usually think of tourism as doing more harm than good in its environment with people littering, walking off trails, or creating more exhaust through travel. But Jay found a way to use tourism as a tool for environmental advocacy. What he just mentioned, empathy, seems to be the key that other companies are missing. Not only is empathy what inspires him to protect marine life, but it also allows him to reach the people who don't. Having been arrested, he knows how easy it is to believe that actions won't lead to consequences. High school Jay knew what he was doing wrong, but he didn't change his ways until he realized the reality of the risks he was taking. In the same way, Jay's tours show people the incredible resources and natural wonders they risk losing unless they fully grasp the impact of their actions. And when you finally grasp that, then you can truly be a part of positive change. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox. Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibada Thrive, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Kandaza. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.